There's a saying in Indiana that we often use when we greet someone, we might say to them, hey, what do you know, right? That's a statement. Some people in some areas, they might say, hey, what's happened or what's going on? But here in Hoosier land, <clears throat> we always ask that question, what do you know? When I first moved here, I had no clue what that meant. I was like, what do I know? I don't know, five times five is 25? I'm not sure what you're asking me here, right? What do I know? It's an interesting statement. It would have been a very interesting statement in John's day. Because John is, is working with the, the Gnostics. He's working with false teachers, and, and, and their idea was that knowledge was everything. In fact, there was a secret knowledge they believed that was everything, and that it was in knowing that secret knowledge that, that you'd be able to have your best life, so to speak. Unfortunately, the knowledge of the Gnostics, well, it didn't line up at all with what Jesus said about sin. It didn't line up at all with what Jesus said about salvation. It didn't line up at all with what Jesus said about how we live our lives with other people. It was, in fact, almost the opposite of what the Gnostics believed. The problem for John was that the Gnostics were leading Christians astray. And these new uh, Gentile or Greek Christians were listening to what the Gnostics were saying, and they were, they were accepting it. And they were moving away from Christianity into this new way of thinking. And John recognized that if Jesus' words were true, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And if someone was trying to get there some other way, John knew that would end in disaster. So John writes this letter to the Christians to try to warn them, to help them, to encourage them. And uh, he shares some remarkable truths, some remarkable teachings with them uh, to correct them and to point them in the right direction and to make sure they understand what's really going on. Now, for John, there's no question. It's all about Jesus. His life is all about Jesus. And he is living his life for Jesus. He is living his life because of Jesus. And he is trying his very best to do the things that Jesus asked him to do. What did Jesus ask him to do? He said, John and, and the other disciples, go into all the world, preach, teach, make disciples, baptize. This is what John is trying to do. He's trying to live out his calling that was given to him by Jesus. It's a good thing for us to try to do. We should each be trying to live out our Christ-given calling in the world today. So John says there are some things I want you to know, some truths that will help you. And there are some things that you should know, Gnostics and Christians. In fact, he says there are, there are five great truths that you should be holding on to and understanding. And here's what's awesome for us today. These truths have, have weathered the test of time. And you'll find out today that they are just as powerful for us to consider as they were in the very first century. So let's dive into this text today, and we're going to look at several passages across the book and letter of 1 John, and uh, the verses will be up on the screen so you can follow along or take notes, and we're going to look at these five truths. Now the very first truth we're going to look at is a truth about sin and what sin is. Now the, the Gnostics denied 
that sin really even mattered. They didn't think that what you did with your physical body had any consequence on your spirit at all. And so their idea was really, you could, I mean, if there was such a thing as sin, it had no effect on your spirit. That's their thought. In other words, they thought that sin had no eternal consequences. It might have some earthly consequence. If you steal, you might get arrested and go to jail, whatever, but you, you wouldn't face an, an eternal consequence for your actions. Now, John has a very different idea about sin. In fact, he says this. He says, listen, if we walk in the light as he or as Jesus is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. So he asks a question to all of us today, are we walking in the light? And if we confess our sins, he, that is Jesus, is faithful and just. He'll forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And this is another question for us, right? Have I confessed my sins to God? And here's the truth I want to bring home about sin. We all sin and fall down in many ways. John understood that. But in John, 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, he says this. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. <laughs> I don't know if you... If you catch everything John is trying to say here, right? John understands and believes that we all sin, but, but there's this great truth that John says, he says, listen, in our battle with sin, we're not fighting by ourselves. There's someone who's on our side who's looking out for us. That's what an advocate does. There's someone who's looking out for you. This past week, I had a chance to sit down with a friend, a friend who just a few years ago saw his life turned upside down by some poor choices that he had made. He faced jail time, a loss of, of income, a loss of, of, of job, a loss of transportation, a loss of all kinds of things. His life had hit the bottom. Now, if we didn't have an advocate, if in this life as Christians there was no one looking out for us or trying to help us, when we hit those moments, we would be hopeless and almost helpless. But my friend has an advocate. And because of that, Christians came alongside this person. This person deepened his faith and confessed his sins to God. He moved in a new direction. And I'm happy to tell you that today God has completely restored my friend. It's an awesome thing to see and to know that God does that. Now, how does that happen? Well, it happens because... Jesus is not out there trying to make us fall and stumble. He's trying to lift us up, to encourage us. I mean, this was his story throughout the New Testament when he was on the earth. Think how he was constantly coming alongside people who were oppressed and downtrodden, whether it was a, a leper with an incurable disease or it was a woman caught in the sin of adultery. More than once, Jesus reached out to the people who were downtrodden. In fact, he was sometimes called a friend of publicans and sinners, of drunkards, because he reached out to the people that no one else would reach out to. He was their advocate. He was their champion. He was on their side, and he's on your side if you're in Christ. 
See, the Gnostics, they, they kind of thought it was all up to them themselves. This divine spark is in you. You're the one who calls your shots, and you're the one who makes your destiny. And that sounds good, and that makes the storyline of a lot of movies these days. But for John, this advocate that he had in Christ was what mattered the most. So who's your advocate? Who's looking out for you? We all sin, we all fall short, but John says we have an advocate who's doing everything he can to help us in our battle against sin. And he's willing to pay whatever the price is for our deliverance from sin. In fact, he did. John wants you to know you have an advocate to help you in the fight against sin. Let's talk more about this Christ-centered life because John wanted you to know what it meant to be in Christ. The Gnostics viewed Jesus as kind of a spiritual example, but not as a savior. Uh, And they didn't really see any reason to follow his moral teachings or commands. He was someone that you might aspire to be like because he was both man and spirit, and they really were excited about the spiritual side of Jesus, but not the physical side. But John wants us to understand who Jesus really is completely. And he wants us to know, this idea of the Gnostics, he wants us to know that we have come to know him if we start keeping his commandments. Quite the opposite of the Gnostics who didn't care about what he commanded. John says, listen, it's important that you do what he asks you to do. It's a simple question, but it's one that strikes every one of us, and we examine ourselves and ask that question, am I keeping his commands? Right? John said, we know we've come to know him if we're doing that. But what does it mean if we're not keeping his commands in some area of our life? He doubles down in the next set of verses in chapter uh, 2, verses 5 and 6. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in Jesus must live as Jesus did. And that's a haunting verse in a way because it causes us to ask the question, am I really living my life like Jesus or like Marty or like someone else? Who, who am I? The existential question comes into play. If Christ is in my life, then I should be living like him, keeping his commandments. But John says if we are in Christ, there's another great truth that comes from the Christ-centered life. He wants to make sure we understand it. He says in verse 13 of chapter 5, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. In the Christ-centered life, he says, listen, if you know Jesus... If he is your Lord and your Savior, if you believe in his name, understand this truth. It's not through some mystical experience that you have eternal life. It's through Jesus. And I want you to know that you, I want you to know that you have eternal life, to know it, not to be wondering, am I saved or am I not saved? I want you to know that, that you have what you need to be. You can be confident that you have eternal life, confident in that. You can know. And what a difference it makes when we come along people who seem to have that knowledge. One of the things I love about our associate pastor, Virgil, is that uh, Virgil has a very real sense about life and death. And, and when he first would talk about 
Uh, death, I, I, it always kind of bugged me because he's like, hey, I'm ready to go. If it's today, it's today, right? It's just the way he lives his life. And you've heard him when he's preached and he's talked about Dory. And man, he has a, a strong conviction that Jesus' words are true and that there is still life going on even after this existence is over. He just lives in that in a very real way. John says, listen, I want you to know you can have eternal life. Now, John understands that the people he's writing to are living in a time and space. They're living in a world. And for John, when he hears Jesus talk about his father and the father's love for us, in the conversations that John had had, right? John, had, he was a simple, hardworking, blue-collar guy who had come to follow Jesus. And over time, he had become one of the best friends of Jesus. Sometimes they called him the disciple Jesus loves. And he watched how Jesus was treated by the world. It was important to John. He saw how the world treated him. He, he watched very closely. And, and when you start hearing John say things about the world being evil, understand some things that John's been through. The powers in Jerusalem killed Jesus on the cross. John was there. He saw it. He saw the abuse of power. How the people who didn't like what Jesus was saying plotted to kill him. John saw that. He saw that as evil in the world. In John's time, uh, and, and later in the first century, perhaps even 40 or 50 years after his time with Jesus, he sees Rome and the power of Rome beginning to attack the church. He sees Christians dying for their faith. He sees encounters people who are trying to make him stop preaching and teaching about Jesus. In fact, he'll end up, and perhaps even is, in prison on an island as he writes these letters. To him, he sees a world that it's not a wonderful place. Evil seems to hold sway and the wrong things get lifted up as right, and the right things get put down as wrong. The world's evil. And yet I said this still plays out pretty well 2,000 years later almost, right? Because that's kind of our world these days. A lot of things that we know are wrong, that God says are wrong, are lifted up as right. And a lot of things we know as right are put down as wrong. And in some places in the world, the same persecution of Christians that happened in John's day is happening today. So John saw the world not as a great place, but as an evil place. Listen to the things that he says about the world. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. That's a big statement, but that's, that's what he says about the world. <laughs> Satan has a lot of control here in this space. It begs a question about personal reflection. Who or what is in control of my life? Who or what is in control of your life? John warns us. He says, do not love the world or anything in the world. In fact, if anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, 
the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. Causes us to reflect, how am I doing in these areas of lust and pride and worldly desires? John says it matters. Don't get too attached to this world because he says this world and its possessions and its desires, they all pass away. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. (laughs) John wants you to know the truth about the world that you live in. Be very wise in who you serve. Now, if you say that you love Jesus, if you call yourself a Christian, and you understand that you're not supposed to live like the rest of the world lives, that Jesus should make a difference in your life, then John says that's going to be a call to some kinds of action. And it's not just about a private, personal relationship with God. That's not all that matters. It's not just about you loving God well. If you love God well, then you will also, what follows, right, you'll also love others well, the way that Jesus loved others well. And so John comes back to a theme he's spoken about regularly throughout this entire book, and in in 1 John chapter 4, right, he says, we, we went over this a few weeks ago, I want you to catch this again, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God, but whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Later in chapter four, he says, we love because he first loved us. Who never claims to love God, yet hates a brother or a sister is a liar. For Jesus has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. I don't know what causes you to think, but it makes me ask the question, how well am I loving others? I like what John wrote in the third chapter. He said, see or consider what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Loving fathers lavish love on their children. They want their kids to know that they are loved, that they are important. And that is the way John says that God loves us. He lavishes his love. He he gives it in proportions greater than we deserve. It's a beautiful image about the love of God. John wants people to know God loves them. See, for the Gnostics, it was largely about themselves, very self-centered or humanistic idea. But John says, listen, we love him because he first loved us. He's the one who has loved us from the beginning. And, and so because we are so loved, we should also love him. And we should also love others. So we can know that we are deeply loved by God. And that's important. In the early 20th century, the revival preachers, they painted a picture of God as a God, not of love, but of hate, holding us on a string over a cauldron of fire, ready at any second that we screwed up to drop us into hell. 
But that's not the picture that John paints. He puts the picture of us falling towards destruction and God doing everything he can to catch us and draw us in and pull us to safety because he loves us. Well, there's one last thing that was important to John. And it was the idea of the truth. What is the truth? How do I know what's true? These Christians were having to ask this question, how do I know what's really true, what I should really be doing? And he offers this last word. I don't write to you because you do not know the truth, but rather because you do know it. Because no lie comes from the truth. So who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is an important word that he uses here for Christ is the word for Messiah, the plan, the deliverer. When he says this, he says, if anyone says there's some other way to God but through Jesus, they're a liar. This is a pretty strong statement against the Gnostics who were saying it's through some special knowledge that you get to God. He says, no, it's through Jesus. Who is the liar? It's whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. And then he gives this incredibly strong term. Such a person is the antichrist or the one against Christ because they are denying the Father and the Son. And no one who denies the Son has the Father. But whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. So is my life truthful with God, with others, with myself? John wants you to know one last piece about the truth. God didn't just love you and set an example for you, but he lives with you. His spirit indwells you. Listen to this truth he gives to the Christians. But you have an anointing from the Holy One. And all of you know the truth. God has put his spirit in you if you are in Christ. And because of that, you can know the truth. And you can live in the truth. Because you have a spiritual anointing. Let's review real quickly this concept of John. If Christ reigns in your life, then you enjoy five great truths. You have an advocate with the Father who forgives your sins, Jesus Christ. You can be confident that you have eternal life. You can know that even though the world is evil, you have overcome the world. And you can understand that your place is not as a, a servant or as a, an outsider, but you are God's child with all of the perks that being God's child brings. And you can know that you're never alone, that God's spirit lives in you. They have a spiritual anointing. So here's the question, right? The question John ultimately was posing to them is, in your life, who's reigning? For the Gnostics, it was self-determination. You reign and you rule your own life. And for the Christians, John's saying, it is the Christ-ruled life. He is the one who is reigning, or a better way of saying it, he's the one who pulls the reins and directs your life. So is Jesus Christ reigning in your life today? 
or a something or someone else in control of your life. I have shared many times that one of the real blessings I, I have experienced in my life was being raised in a Christian home. You've heard me tell stories about grandma's Bible stories at night, time before bed, and, and, and stories about being raised. My dad was a preacher, so being raised in the church and being around people. In the early 1970s, one of the people that had a big impact in my life was an elder in the church of Wellsburg, Kentucky. And it was early 1970, and I was five or six years old when I first met Adrian. My dad preached there for a number of years. We'd leave Cincinnati, where I grew up, and we'd head over there to Wellsburg every weekend. He was a weekend preacher. I loved it when we'd go to Adrian's house. When you go to Adrian's house, you'd, you'd cross a little river, and as you cross the river, right on the other side of the river, there was this big ranch. You'd see wild horses, truly Mustangs that came from the West that he had on his ranch. And then you'd see these horses running around and cattle out there, and inevitably, it wouldn't take very long until you'd see Adrian riding a horse with a cowboy hat. I mean, he was John Wayne to me as a little boy, right? He was legit. And he had it all, right? I mean, because of what he did where he was, if he came to church on Sunday, I mean, he still kind of smelled a little bit like those horses, which was perfectly fine with a five-year-old. No problem at all. In fact, some days when we would drive up there, and I thought this was so cool, we'd drive in our, in our car, but there tied to the rail at the church would be his horse because he just lived not at a mile from the church, and so sometimes he'd finish his jobs, his chores on his ranch, and he'd just ride his horse to church. I thought that was so cool. So I loved this guy, and he was like a hero to me when I was a little boy, and, and uh, he taught me to ride a horse. He did a lot of great things, and as he built trust in us, and he, he would teach, uh, teach sometimes in our classes and different things, and one Sunday afternoon, my brother and I had a chance to go for a ride in his old pickup truck, uh, in between, right in those days, you had Sunday morning church and Sunday night church. It was in the middle of that that he offered to take us out. He was going to go feed some horses and, and do a little bit of work on one of his barns and uh, with some of his animals. And he said, do you guys want to come along? My dad said, yeah, they can go. And my brother and I were, boy, we ate that up. This was like, this was the best thing that could have happened, right? So we get in the truck with Adrian. We ride out to this other little farm that he has where he has some other horses there and when we get there, the first thing that happened, we got out of the truck, and there, was a, there were these plants that were just growing along the fence row. Now, I had picked blackberries already, so I knew that you could eat some of the things that you saw in the wild. And Adrian just reaches over, and he grabs a handful of these leaves, green leaves, off of this plant, and he says, uh, do you trust me? Now, that's a dangerous thing to hear from somebody, but I'd been around this person long enough to know that he was probably pretty trustworthy. And I said, yeah. My brother said, yeah. And he said, well, here, chew on these. Now, it could have been anything. I'd had no idea. It could have been tobacco. I wouldn't have known what it was, but it wasn't that because I could trust him. He was reliable. He was a truly person, good person. He had given us mint, wild mint to chew on. I was like, that's the flavor of chewing gum. I was blown away. I thought that came from somewhere else. I know it came from leaves on a, on a bush. He asked us a second question that same afternoon. He says, do you trust me? I said, yeah, we, we trust you. He said, well, put these on. And he gave us beekeeper hats with nets that came down and pairs of gloves. 
He took some string that he had in the truck and he tied up uh, our sleeves on our shirts. In those days, you still wear your long sleeve shirt through the day for church. And he tied them up and he said, let's go. He didn't have on a hat or gloves or anything. He had a little, little smoker is all he had. And we, you know where we were going, right? We went back to the bees. He had beehives. Now, when he got there and the bees are flying, I stopped. We, my brother and I probably didn't get within 20 feet of the beehive. That's about as close as we got. Even though he said, do you trust me? We weren't getting any closer. And that's about where we stayed. And I marveled, right? I marveled because Adrian walked over to that thing and smoked a little bit and lifted up. Pulls out a honeycomb out of a beehive, right? No, nothing. I mean, he was a true bee charmer, so to speak. And he comes walking back towards us. And I had it. Like, in the Bible, it talks about Samson eating the honeycomb and, and David's son eating it. I mean, I, he's like, here, taste this. Wow. There's nothing like fresh, real honeycomb. That is a once-in-a-lifetime experience. That's incredible. I thought, man, this is amazing, right? This was not doing anything to tear down my image of him as an incredible person, only building it back up. Lastly, he took us into the barn where the horses were, and he gave us a little lesson about how it was that he, the way that he broke horses, was about trust. And he said that the horses have to come to trust you. If they trust you, they're not going to disobey you. They're going to let you take them on a path where they need to go. And uh, he said, do you trust me? My brother, I was, yeah. You know, so far we got chewing gum from leaves and we got honey. Why not? And he put us up on the horse. Now, as a five-year-old, that horse was like twice or three times as tall as me. We got up there and he said, it's okay. This is my horse. You'll be all right. And he walked us out. And that was the first lesson in riding horses I ever got in my life. And he handed us the reins. So this horse will go wherever you, if you want to go left, you pull left. If you want to go right, you pull right. If you want to stop, you pull back. And don't worry, I'll be right here in the corral with you. And off we went. And I doubt that that horse trusted us at all. But he trusted Adrian. And the ride was perfect. And I learned a lot of lessons about trust that day that stuck with me for life. Now, people tend to let us down. And I'm sure that Adrian had his flaws, and if I was there today as an adult and had worked with him all his life, I'd know what they were. Because people have flaws. But Jesus doesn't. John said, I've learned that I can trust him with everything in my life. And I will let him have the reins. Where he leads me, I'll follow. What he asked me to do, I'm going to do. Jesus, John would say, is in control of my life. Today, I want to encourage you to let Christ reign in your life. If you have a decision to make for Jesus, I encourage you to make it as we stand and as we sing our hymn of invitation. Let's stand.